Catherine Raven, your first book is out. It's called Fox and I. We are in love with your book. We're in love with you. We're in love with the fox. Thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. I am happy to be here. Would you set up the book for listeners, please? This is a really marvelous special book. The book is about my best friend, and it's for my best friend. He was a wild red fox. Mm -hmm. And unless you're really weird, you realize that if someone's best friend is a wild fox, then their only friend is a wild fox. And that is in fact the case. He was my only friend, but he helped me to decide on where and how I should live. And he made me friendlier. And I started out being a magpie of a person and Mm -hmm. I ended up being a fox of a person. (laughs) I copied, I tried to copy him and become just like him at the end. For people who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, what do you mean when you say you were a magpie of a person and you became a fox of a person? (sighs) Magpies who live with me, who if you Mm -hmm. hear thumping, it's them, but I think Mm -hmm. it's too hot today. Magpies don't like humans by their nature. And there's really not much you can do to befriend a magpie. You can try, but the fact is their lives are very short and you probably won't live long enough and they won't live long enough for you to make up for all of the damage that's been done. So they just carry this burden with them from hundreds of years, maybe 200 years and all these generations. It's just become innate that they don't like people and they're not going to be friendly. And the fox he was the opposite. He just was clever enough and wise enough to know that going through this world one by one, each person by themselves was a pretty dumb idea. And he wasn't going to go through this world one by one by himself. He wanted friends, not just to be useful, although I wondered for a long time if He just wanted me because I was useful. But I think he realized the value of friends as really something that is priceless, something that has an intrinsic value to it. So yes, I thought he had a personality. (laughs) Well, you did what a lot of people have thought about doing over time, which is you picked up stakes and you moved to the wilderness. And granted, you moved for school, but you also were, you were a park ranger. Yes. You were doing a PhD in biology. Do I have that right? PhD in biology. You've been trained as a scientist. You've been trained as a park ranger. You have been trained not to treat wild creatures as if they are pets or they have personalities or that they have human characteristics. I was so proud of myself to get Mm -hmm. that PhD and I love science. And as you'll know, if you read my book, I kind of love Charles Darwin. I have a lot of respect for him. So I do cite him a lot because I think it's a shame that so many people think he's sort of out of reach and he's not really Mm -hmm. out of reach. So I love science, but I also loved working for the park service and it was really drilled into our heads that we cannot anthropomorphize Mm -hmm. wildlife. You can't can't name animals, even if that bear shows up in the same spot every day. And even though some of them live 30 or 40 years, Mm -hmm. you can't start giving it a name. Nothing like that. No anthropomorphizing at all. And it took me a long time with the fox. I tried really hard to fight what my reason and my training was saying was just, he can't have a personality. You can't anthropomorphize. But he went out in the end. He showed up every day at 4.15. Yes. And I tried to get him, as you remember, to show up Mm -hmm. at a different time. Uh Um, 
but he wasn't going to, I mean, it wasn't convenient for him. He had his day set to the sun and Mm -hmm. he wanted to be in certain places when the sun was how it was when he wanted it. And that's, and he was a creature of habit. It's not that common in wild animals. And I'm noticing that as I try the same relationships with other animals that live here, I'm realizing that that is the one most important thing. If you're going to have a relationship with an animal, they have to have a schedule and most of them don't because you can't sit outside all day long waiting for the deer or the skunk to show up. They have Mm -hmm. to be out in the daytime, which is unusual. And they have to be there at a time when you can count on them to be there. And uh, he made himself available. And mm-hmm. I guess he figured that eventually I would figure it out because he knew I was outside at that time. I just wasn't sitting on those steps. And uh, he made himself available day after day after day until I thought I will be here every day and I won't be late because he has no patience. Is that when you started reading The Little Prince to him? To get him to um, stay. When, mm-hmm. I, when I ran out of trinkets, I mm-hmm. noticed he really liked all the things that I had in my pocket, the feathers and the rocks. And he liked it when I took them out and I talked about them. And then I would leave them and walk away a few meters and sit down and let him nose through all of the stuff I had put on the steps. And he really liked that. But after a while, it got tiresome and I needed something else to keep his attention. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would read and that worked really well. Mm-hmm. The reading went absolutely fantastic. He knew that I was engaging with him. Mm-hmm. I suppose babies know that too. Even right. though babies obviously don't know what you're saying, they know if two people are in the room or ignoring them or if two people are in the room engaging with them. And this went on for four years. Yeah. Yeah. It went on for two years with him always the same time and always uh-huh. coming by. Now, of course, not in the winters. As I said, he was up high a lot in the wintertime. Sometimes I wouldn't, sometimes when it was really cold and brutal, I wouldn't see him. Mm-hmm. And of course, on really rainy days, which are almost never, I didn't see him. But we, we started to spend more and more time together every day, more and more time, not just reading, but maybe I would go for a walk and he would be around. I would walk up to his den. We went through two den sites. So he was very spectacularly loyal. When did you start writing this book? I started writing about the middle of our relationship when he brought those kits down. To me, there are certain concepts like love, for example, which I don't use relative to human beings and really feel like I mean it because that word just doesn't mean anything to me. It's just sort of odd and nebulous. And people say they love their sneakers and they love their dinner. And then you tell somebody you love them. And But I have images and actions that mean a lot to me. And the day that he brought those kits down, that was a, an amount of trust that said something to me that that I can understand that he trusted me so much that he brought these kids down there, four of them, in the moonlight and let me basically get close to them and be in charge of them. And I mean, he trusted me that much. That was shocking. And th- at that point, I thought, this is this animal really cares about me. He really, that's just amazing how much he really relies on me and cares about me. And I decided I owe this to him. I'm going to write about him. And that's when I knew. I dedicated this book to Fox. You've mentioned that he was responding to you reading. Would you talk a little bit about when you sort of knew that 
there was something more going on. You, you referenced some research done by a Russian scientist that made you also think that there was something going on as well. Yeah, foxes actually had been tamed to respond to human uh, voice and they understand almost like dogs do. So they can understand a little bit about our voices, whereas other animals, they don't. Ducks, for example, they just hear us well, when we hear a duck, it sounds like quack, quack, quack. And when they hear us, it just sounds like maybe blah, blah, blah. But foxes actually can tell discrete sounds. And foxes don't t- didn't take that long. So Balyev, he took maybe, what was it, 50 generations, something like that, which isn't too much. But fox didn't actually respond to my arm commands very often, although he looked back at me sometimes uh, when he was walking away. But he did come to recognize my voice. And I know he recognized me because I learned if I wanted to have him around at a time other than 4.15, when I knew he was up on the hills outside on his den, I would just walk around, wave my arms, try to make myself big. I'm a really short person. And he would come down. So I know he could see me. I learned one day that he could hear my voice because he was just buried in tall uh, grasses where he couldn't possibly have seen me. And I was behind the house at a place I had never met him before. I think that the way that he sat and watched me while I read made me realize that he, I mean, he he would just be looking around if he wasn't trying to interact with me, ignoring me, eating a bug or getting up to get a mouse or something. But he would sit and I would read and then hold the book up so he could see a picture. And then I would look at a section of the book, read it, and then paraphrase it to him. And I would always pause while he was staring at me and count to 15. Otherwise, he would think I was just reading out loud to myself and I wasn't interacting with him. So I think that waiting and watching him was an indication. I think, and maybe not every animal can do that. Foxes are very variable, but he definitely could do that. He could realize that waiting and talking and waiting and talking, that was a conversation, so to speak. The Little Prince isn't the only book that you reference in The Fox and I. You talk quite a lot about Ishmael from Moby Dick, which is quite fun. And you also talk about Frankenstein. And I want to start with Frankenstein for a second, because you have this great line in your book where you say, chemistry and math are fine for people who love chemistry and math, but they don't speak for nature and neither do magic or alchemy. I was toying with an option outside the reach of science in the physical world, intuition, the knowledge that comes without conscious reasoning. I'd like to talk about intuition for a second, one, because it's fun and it's fascinating, but also you're really clear that your world was this hybrid of the natural world and science and what you were taught as a park ranger, what you were taught while you were getting your PhD in biology. And yet you also did really just trust your gut a lot. Yes, I did a lot. And I realized that I empathize with animals. I always knew that I didn't empathize with humans, or I'd known that for a very long time. But I didn't realize that other people don't empathize with animals as well as I do until I started reading so many books that were about animals and realized that they're not still really about animals. They're still about us looking at that animal. And it's very natural for me to empathize with other animals for sure. Yes. I say other animals because of course humans are animals, but Mm -hmm. people do forget that a lot. So it's probably 
easier for me. Well, certainly easier for me than other people, but that doesn't mean that other people can't. And I I don't want to discourage people. People can learn. It's not natural for me to empathize with people, but I practice mm-hmm. by listening to songs on the radio. <laughs> and I listen to the words and how they're saying them and try to figure out what that singer's feeling and emotion. And I've done that for decades, trying to learn emotions, the words and how they're saying them. And so you can learn to be empathetic with with other animals that aren't human. It's just practice. Well, and you also talk in the book about how empathy is the gateway to friendship. I mean, empathy is the thing that you now, as you said, have become a little bit more like a fox and you have a little wider circle, but it started with empathy. And I think that's just, I think that's lovely. Thank you. It's scary too, because we're not, humans aren't really good at empathizing with non-humans. You know, I, I keep really good track of what's going on with homo sapiens and homo neanderthals. And it's just still so shocking to me that we're so arrogant about, and it just shocks people every time someone comes out with a new study that shows that we did hybridize with them. Like, no, no, <laughs> we're our own species. We're not related to any other genus of homo. And so we definitely don't want to believe that we're closely related to even chimpanzees, let alone foxes. You talk about sort of the artificial lives we've built for ourselves as human beings, you know, things that we do to extend our lives or improve the quality of our lives, whether that's technical kinds of clothing or medical intervention or things that we can do to live longer. And yet, as we continue to do that, we intrude more on the natural world and we increase our expectations of the natural world that it stays somehow pristine and unique and unchanged. And yet here we are stamping ourselves all over. It is true. It's it's one of the reasons why you're in John Muir country. So you might want to mm-hmm. edit this part out because everybody loves John Muir out there, but I've never loved John Muir. The first time I read him, I was working on a fire out your way. He thought that it should be this pristine and untouched thing. And that's not quite fair to the people that live there or to the animals that, that live there. I know it's a really tough People should be a little concerned about John Muir's ideas and not just adopt them wholeheartedly because he had an odd idea about wilderness. It's a tough idea for someone such as, for example, the superintendent of Yellowstone Park. Man, I feel sorry for uh, whoever has that job because the animals in Yellowstone have to be treated separately, not as wild. Not, I mean, that has to be 100% the responsibility of a superintendent because there aren't very many parks in this world. They're, and they're so crowded and they're so, they're so rare and they're so crowded with people. But he has to make tough decisions like, what do you do when wolves have mange? Mm-hmm. It's tough. But I don't think when it comes to mange on your own property or on some other land, then then that's your decision. You made that decision for Fox. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would have, if I, if the treatment didn't work, I, I was ready to put him in my have a heart trap and bring him right to the Senator's office and say, you are going to cure this Fox. You, we are not going to let foxes die of mange on my land that I have control over. It's just not going to happen. Humans brought mange to the state. and And maybe even if we didn't, I would feel the same way, but we just can't treat them as though, oh, it's nature. It's a tough world, tough love, you know, and uh, animals die. (laughs) I don't, I just don't think we should be so cavalier about animals dying. 
What's a better way for us to move forward? We have, as you said, there are not a lot of national parks. We have not been great at preserving the outdoors. I think we're trying, but I think we haven't succeeded as much as we would like. So how do we make this better? How do we make more space for fox and wolves? There needs to be, I know I come from Montana and we are supposed to be the Wild West and not believe in regulations, but we're not regulating ourselves very well Mm -hmm. when we allow people to live wherever they want and not have open space. That needs to be regulated. It shouldn't matter how much money you have. There needs to be open land and open space access, not for dog walking parks, but really for places where animals can still exist because they're rare everywhere. And there's one other thing that I wish somebody would sneak into that big bill that Biden is working on that he's calling the infrastructure bill. Someday, maybe I'll have enough money to have my own nonprofit. But what I'd really like to do what I just did yesterday when I was driving the shovel in my car, when I, I cannot stand seeing animals on the side of the road, and especially in the middle of the road. And I realized for most people, it's just an animal. And I know they can't help the fact that I'm a little weird. I cannot see an animal in the road. To me, it's just a person. I can't help it. There is an animal smashed in the road and it just, to me, it's a person and I can't stand it. We wouldn't let a human body be on the side of the road. But I admit that I'm different. On the other hand, if we would just get the animals off the road and treat them with respect, people would start to learn that we respect them. I think that people that are neutral and even maybe people that have are sort of a little bit of animal empathy, they've gotten so used to seeing the fact that it's okay to just leave a dead body in the middle of the road. And it's not okay. It's disrespectful. And people just keep running it over or something. I mean, I can't stand it. So I move them when I can. And um, I wish that we just would have people that could do that, that could just go down. Maybe it's not a problem in LA. It's a lot in Montana, but maybe it would just be somebody's job and we would get in the habit of moving animals off the road. But I think that would help. But of course, we still need the space for sure. Well, and that's something else you say later in the book. People were anxious in graduate school and not just students. The habits and habitat of modern life are simply not evolutionarily stable. No. Do you think they are? I don't. I think we're seeing more and more examples of the ways that it's not working. Yesterday, I saw a dead fox on the road about 20 miles from Mm -hmm. here. And that really surprised me because I never, almost never see dead foxes. Skunks have really bad eyesight. Mm -hmm. Porcupines have terrible eyesight and they weren't evolved to deal with cars. So when we first started with cars on the road, a lot of porcupines die. And then people say, what stupid animals, but they don't realize that there's things in the world that can move that fast. And then suddenly we had cars moving at, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour and skunks are dying all over the place. But now the traffic has doubled and there's so much construction everywhere. It seems like every third rig is enormous. It's just carrying asphalt or gravel or whatever, but, oh, it's an 18 wheeler and the Fox, they can't evolve that fast. Generation after generation, there were just people on foot and then there were people on horseback and then there were cars and then they can't evolve fast enough to be able to walk across a road never stops. So they might get used to waiting a certain amount of time, but there's so many eagles in the air, golden eagles flying around, and they just can't wait. And they've never done it. So, and there it was a dead fox in the road. I was horrified, but they can't evolve that fast. So it's really hard on the animals. But I know you asked about 
people, you said the food that we eat. And I try not to eat processed food. Mm -hmm. I'm always Mm -hmm. still really surprised when I hear people that are just normal and smart and educated talk about some things they eat. And I think, doesn't anybody read the Harvard Woman's Health Watch? (laughs) I read it. (laughs) Nobody should be eating that food at all. I mean, so I don't know. I try not to eat processed food. I I try not to eat weird things that my grandmother couldn't pronounce. (laughs) But it's also too how we interact with space. And I say this as a city person, and I do love living in the city, but I also really appreciate being able to get out of the city. And I'm a huge fan of the national park system. I'm so delighted that we have it, but I'm also not a backcountry hiker. I like clearly marked trails and I'm perfectly happy to not feed the wildlife. I just would like to go for a lovely walk with a lot of water in my backpack (laughs) and snacks and appropriate footwear, and then go back and stay in a very cute hotel. You talk about how when you bought your piece of property in Montana, where your cottage is and you still live, that you were now responsible for this piece of the world. And in California, with the fires, you'd think that people would be a little bit more concerned about managing their land for fire, which is the same as managing it for most wildlife, because most wildlife don't benefit from the fires, but managing it for wildlife and managing it for fire. I mean, those are the two most important things you manage your land for, it seems like. You can still have Mm -hmm. the flowers or the, I think that people manage their land for other things for what it looks like, I guess, but they don't think, how can we manage it for wildlife? Where are the wildlife corridors? I mean, can an animal walk through here safely or Mm -hmm. did we put too many obstacles in their way? Is there cover for them and what's there for them to eat? What do your students think? I mean, you've been teaching for a really long time. Love students, all of them. I have a lot of students tell me stories about foxes. That's one of the things that I'm hoping will come out of this book is that I think people have been hiding a lot of these stories and not wanting to tell because they've been embarrassed. It surprises me so much how many people remember foxes that they thought were trying to communicate, trying to be friendly, trying to establish a relationship or a deer, but they just pushed them away or looked the other way. They couldn't really believe it was happening. And now I think more people will change and will remember. And some of them are thinking about things from when they were younger. I remember my one student who was in one of the armed services up in Alaska, and he talked about the fox that was like the tame fox on the base. And he said, Now that I'm in an ecology class and I'm so embarrassed about it. And that is people's normal instinct, the same instinct that I had. It's embarrassing to tell people, you know, I saw this this gray jay or this magpie. It it comes almost every day and it's been coming for a long time and it sits in the same spot. And I think it's starting to recognize me. You wouldn't say that. People would think you were crazy. People start to worry that maybe you won't be human-centric anymore. The dividing line between humans and other animals is not a really good dividing line, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It's funny, people would know that if you asked them a little bit differently, people who have dogs or cats or things, I think that a lot of people would say they care more about their dog or their cat than they do about other people. I think they would say that, or even a horse or something. But in general, people do believe that we should definitely put our own species first, but you're sharing the same water and the same dirt and the same plants and stuff. So even the voles, even the voles. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you have a great chapter in the book called Vole Forest. And it's very early in the book. And, and it's where you're sort of discovering Fox, but you're also discovering your limits because you're saying, well, you know, these voles and they're kind of like mice, only not. They're yes. mice and vole. <laughs> they're like um, mice, but they're not as charismatic. <laughs> But you start calling out your own behavior where you're like, I can't destroy their nest of voles just because I don't <laughs> like them. I have to have a good reason to not do this. So you figured out how to live with the voles. You figured out how to live with the magpies who sound honestly a little like a handful, the way you describe them in the book. <laughs> they are. And they still, um, their nest was gone for a couple of years. It was kind of quiet except for the blackbirds, but they've come back this year with the vengeance and they are still roof stompers. And do you still have Hungarian partridges? I worry about that. I, I really think um, I haven't seen the Hungarians in a long time. And I, I, that's a policy that I, I really, I just don't get it. Why would, why do we have to kill things just because they're not native here? Mm-hmm. It's just so mm-hmm. weird. It's just an odd policy. Yeah. The Migratory Birds Act doesn't protect them at all. And so people can just slaughter them if they want to. It doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, unless it's a game animal, they're not protected. It's unfortunate. And I think that it's one of the reasons why we we mistreat animals, because we have this feel, we still have this feeling that you have to like be native somewhere in order to be accepted. The United States is going to have to become a refuge for lots of other animals. I mean, we can't just say we're only going to keep animals here that we think are native, because what if they're going extinct somewhere? What if there's a disaster, another nuclear disaster like Chernobyl somewhere and some of those and some species is going to go extinct? Well, if we have room for things, we should make room for the things we have room for. We should be more generous. Have you seen new foxes? Have you redeveloped relationships with foxes on on your land? No, and there's and I see foxes all the time and I haven't been able to get another relationship with a fox. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had a fox that comes at the same time. And the other thing is, I do notice that there's just a certain distance that I can get and they seem okay, but they won't let me get much closer. I do have a skunk that's that's unusual in that I always have lots of skunks here forever Mm -hmm. and they're always out at night. But I have one odd skunk this year that is afraid of the dark. And that skunk is out in the daylight until it's 30 degrees hotter than normal. It's more than record breaking. It's very hot. The skunk was out every evening and he would be right back in the den, which is right behind my house by nine o'clock. So he was out in the daylight and he was always out at the same. I I keep calling it a he because I was just positive it was a he until he brought out the five kits and it's the only adult. So it it is a she and (laughs) she has five little ones and that skunk knows me kind of, It, it lets me get close. But the problem with a skunk I realized is that because they're so, so small, so much smaller than if we've never looked eye to eye, even though it'll sometimes sit and put it puts its nose up a lot and sniffs around, it still only makes it about calf height. And even if I'm sitting on the steps, I'm just too big and it's too small. Its face is too small. So its eyes are too close together. It's nice to see that every once in a while, there will be an animal that has a regular schedule and is diurnal. And that is, um, that's usually only out at night. And that's a key. And you have to have those two things. But skunks, I think, are too small. Lots of people can make 
pets out of skunks, but they take them in the house. And then when it's sitting on your lap, skunks, I think, were a pretty classic pet in Montana in the olden days before cats. You know, cats are relatively new here. So before cats, I think lots of people used skunks for pets. I did not know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Skunks, skunks are not an, were not a, too unusual here in the early days of settlement. Yeah. Also, in the book, you talk about how you were sort of on the verge of deciding whether or not you were going to stay in Montana at your cottage on your land. And it was the fox that helped you decide that you weren't going to leave. Yeah, absolutely. I had job applications and I knew it was really a ridiculous thing to stay. And I knew that I should try to get a real job, benefits, health insurance, and something serious. And you want to put your PhD to use and you think that this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to have a career now that you have a PhD. I mean, that's just what people do at this particular point in their life. And then you need to look for a partner. You shouldn't be living alone and you can't find anybody where there's no people around. So I was just definitely sure that's what I was going to do. This was meant to be a way station, a stopping over point. And he just dogged me around and then... I couldn't leave. And then finally, I started thinking about the big question mark. I had to just stop thinking about the fox and thinking about what I should do and try to acquire some wisdom. But then I went right back to the fox to acquire that wisdom. I thought mm -hmm. I couldn't figure out how to solve the problem. I mean, it was this huge problem and a huge conundrum. And I had no, I mean, what do I do, stay or go? And then I realized that he was probably the most settled. I mean, he had the best quality of life, way better than I did. He definitely seemed to have a much better quality of life than me. And I started figuring out that what his big questions were, and it seemed so obvious to me, having studied animals and having worked as a botanist in an herbarium, every time you have to take a plant and preserve it, you have to write down what's its habit, and for a plant, that means, does it like to grow alone or in a group? Does it like to grow on a slope or in a flat mm -hmm. place? But anyway, plants have habits too. So for every animal and every plant, every living thing, we define their habit and their habitat. And that's the question. Those are the two important questions that we as humans have probably always answered until we developed this thing called culture. Culture kind of started pulling us away from being just plain old animals. And I realized that that's all I had to do. Just think about my habits and my habitat, my optimum. What habitat do I like? Well, that was easy. I'm a country mouse. And then what habits do I like? And what I really like to do is observe wildlife. And I love writing. I love literature and I love writing and I love teaching as well. Those are the things that I like to do. I stopped thinking about trying to find some noun to push myself into. And that was when I realized, so simple, Fox. That was the best lesson I learned from him. And that and then everything fell into place after that. I got decided I would teach online. And of course, I was going to write my book about him. Just habit and habitat. That was it. Nobody ever asks kids that when they're kids. They say, what do you want to be when you grow up? They don't say, what, what's your optimum habit? What's your habitat? And that's a little bit of the Moby Dick reference. I mean, you talk about Ishmael a lot in Fox and I. But also, he picked his place and then made his yeah. life around the place. And you know, I had loved him for forever. I still, mm -hmm. it's, I can see it from here. It's still the, the first book on my shelf and probably will be until somebody comes up with another protagonist, a narrator that I love that much. I always associated with him. 
-hmm. always. I mean, as soon as I read the first chapter, oh my goodness, I know this man. I know him. He's just like me. (laughs) And uh, all the while I was a ranger, I mean, he, I had him in the back of my mind. I mean, Ishmael was just, he was way smarter than I was. I mean, I mean, he was bilingual. He spoke French and he understood philosophy. I mean, he, it doesn't say what his level of education is in the book. We're not told. We are told that he was uh, a teacher at one point. So he had a job, mm-hmm. a job in the city, but he just wanted to hang out on a boat. His best friend didn't even speak English at all, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his best friend and he were just uh, they were different religions, they were different cultures, but they just they really loved each other. I mean, they were so close. And uh, he wanted to be where it was wild and open. And he didn't want to kill whales, which I thought was a riot because a lot of guys probably got jobs on whaling ship because they thought it might be cool to harpoon this big monstrous thing, how exciting that would be. That was one thing he didn't want to do, even though he managed to get a job on a whaling boat was he didn't want to kill any whales. So Saint Exupery is clearly an influence on you. Sand, Wind, and Stars, you reference quite a lot. It's a beautiful book. Also The Little Prince, of course. Moby Dick. Frankenstein. But who are your other literary influences? Well, J.R.R. Tolkien's Hobbit. When I was a kid, really young, that book just meant so much to me and Mm -hmm. still does that. It was big. It was a hardback book that was really big for me to read. First grade, I'm pretty sure. White and black, remember that's and green, that very Mm -hmm. simple cover. It was such a big deal. And it was a world that you totally fell Mm -hmm. into, a complete world. And I never read fantasy ever. I mean, Mm -hmm. I just, and I I still love that voice, that third person voice that almost nobody can do. And he will slip into second person every once in a while. So, you know, he's not pretending to be God. He's your buddy. He's telling you the story. It's just, he knows the story. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. why it's third person. You know, that's why he's in charge of the narration. I love people who can write like, like that. Hilary Mantel does third person that is that really close third person. Mm-hmm. I just want to scream when I read her. It's like, you are so brilliant. How can you write that? Well, I waited so long for her third book. I was worried that she wouldn't do it, but she did. And of course I read all three of them. And sometimes I'll just pick those up and read somewhere because she can do that third person close so well. All the light we cannot see. He does this, he does third person present tense, which I, mm-hmm. I uh, really like as well. Those, uh, but those aren't narrators. Those are writers that I, um, those aren't mm-hmm. literary characters. Those are writers that I really like. Yeah. I don't know if you read um, a French woman's book, uh, Barbary, Muriel Barbary wrote The Elegance of the Hedgehog. Oh, yes, I know it. I have not read it. The characters in that book are three friends that are not a fox and a scientist, but they are oddballs, a concierge at a hotel who's poor and and not formally educated and not particularly attractive. So she's naturally supposed to be stupid. And she ends up becoming best friends with a very, very educated, wonderful and handsome Japanese man who lives in the building. And he's wealthy because he's renting. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little girl who's 12 years old, whose parents are rich and snotty and nobody wants to be friends with them. And it's an amazing book about how we misjudge. I mean, we what all three of them had in common, they realized after connecting and connecting and accidentally, accidentally, what they had in common was they loved Tolstoy. He's the hedgehog of the title of the book. That's what they had in common. That was the thing. The concierge and the Japanese gentlemen, I, I just think are terrific. What are you working on now? A novel I've been working on for a while between um, teaching and this, but I'm 
I'm really been able to get myself into a much better place for time than I was with the Fox. I've learned how to work my time so that I write in a solid chunk in the morning and my teaching can be, and I've I've made so many videos for teaching and such now, and my teaching can be done at that other time of the day when I don't have Mm -hmm. the same creative energy because I've learned that I really have to write in a chunk of time. This is imagination. It's not pulling up your memory. It's imagination, which means that I have to see the scenes. And so maybe I'm walking or I'm jogging or, and I watch what's happening in the book. I watch the characters. And then I think really do that. And I watch it again and I watch it again and they act in front of me. I see the whole scene. And when I'm done seeing it, I write it down. Sometimes I see it at night and I'll wake up. I don't, as far as I know, I don't dream, but I'll wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning and I'll, I'll rehearse that scene that I had seen at night and I'll go over it and over it. And then I write it down. But that means, of course, that I am writing in present tense. And that's the only way that seems natural because I'm actually watching it happen. And it takes place in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And there's a motley crew of people trying to save a hot springs. That sounds pretty terrific. What's the one thing you really want readers to know about The Fox and I? I want people to stop being lonely. Please connect with nature. It just, um, please, this is your birthright. You are an animal. You belong to the animal kingdom. It's not something separate from you. Even if you're a city mouse, there's nature in the city. There's mm-hmm. an, and, and plus you're allowed to come on your weekends and on your vacations to the country. I wish country people and city people would stop arguing with each other about who's taking up the most space or whatever and start getting along. But- that is something you're really clear about in the book too. I mean, you say I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. No, I'm just not. I'm not lonely. There's so many, there's so many individuals that live with me who happen not to be human. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't feel lonely at all, but I would feel lonely if I was forced to live, I think, in a city. And I really, it was a place with just asphalt and big mm-hmm. high rises everywhere. I would have a hard time finding my place. But I think I would eventually, but it would be really difficult. I'm not sure I'm not sure if it would make it long enough. I mean, even things like clouds and the sun and the moon are so important to me. It's really disorienting. I, I was lost the whole time I was in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. That's not a city with a lot of high-rise buildings. Here you can see the sun coming up at the same time that you can watch the moon going down. You can stand in one spot and see the horizon on both sides. And you feel like you know where you are and you don't feel lost. That's amazing. That also seems like a nice place to end the interview. Okay. I'm so happy you wrote the book and I got to read it. Thanks. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 